Welcome to Behind the Canvas. This is the Akron Museum's new podcast that explores exhibitions, events, what's happening here at the museum, and artists in our community. I'm Matt Rebar, and I do social media PR and communications for the Akron Museum. And I'm joined for this first episode, you know, really timely because we're about to wrap up an exhibition that has been kind of record-breaking, 25,000 visitors plus 41 states visited, people from 41 states visited, and 18 countries, and it's been an incredible, well-received show, and I'm sitting with our senior curator, Dr. Jeff Katzen. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing fine. I'm really happy to kick off the new podcast with you, Matt. We're in this early stage of discovering what this podcast will sound like, so I'm really excited to be talking about Keith Haring because that's been probably the last year of your life has been devoted to getting the show together and witnessing it. Well, the funny thing with exhibitions is that by the time the show is opening, a lot of my work is already done. And so sometimes it's tough because it's open and you want to share things with the public, but you're already having to move on to the next exhibition and always be thinking ahead. The great thing about the Herring Show is there's been so much programming and just general interest in it that I've felt like I get to really dwell on the show and live with the show and really enjoy it over the nice long run that it's had. Absolutely. And let's start from the top, right? Who is Keith Haring? Give us the little synopsis, you know, who's that artist? Yeah, Keith Haring was born in Reading, Pennsylvania, but really he grew up in the small community of Cootstown, Pennsylvania, population of just over 5,000. And his dad was an amateur cartoonist and would get the family together to do drawings and sort of fun activities where they'd go back and forth to fill in a page. And everybody in the family all got into it, but Keith was the one who really, truly kept interested in art. And by the time he was finishing up high school, all of his friends really knew he wanted to go to New York. He wanted to be a professional artist. One thing that was really fun, his sister, Kay Herring, came to the museum to give a talk and she shared a page that he had filled out when he was in about fourth grade where it was a question of what would you like to be when you grow up? And he wrote, I want to be an artist. I want to sell works of art and that's how I'll make my living. Here's my artist's signature. I'm already practicing. So, you know, he knew from a young age, this is what he wanted to do. He went because his parents said, okay, maybe don't go into the arts and, you know, be a starving artist. Let's have some commercial opportunity. Let's have you have a career, go to school for graphic design. He tried it, he dropped out after a year because it wasn't really what he wanted to do. He enrolled in a fine art program. He dropped out of that after just a year because he was already prepared to strike out on his own. And so by the 1980s, really at the turn of the decade, come 1980, he's in New York City, he's ready to try to launch his artistic career, and he's been doing abstract painting, performance art, and video art, but he's looking for a new direction. And what he ultimately created was a fusion of the kind of cartoons he did as a kid and the sort of performance that he'd been doing and the graffiti culture that he really loved and observed in New York and the vibrance of New York's scene in terms of music and clubs. And he brought all that together and became, with a sort of simplified but very energetic style, one of the most significant up-and-coming artists of the 1980s. It's really fun that you talk about the idea of the performance behind the work, because I think today in this digital age, right, we're so used to seeing people showing us that process, right? Here's me painting and I'm filming it and it becomes even more performative than maybe it ever has been. So it's interesting to think about what he might be doing if he were still with us today. 
And why do you think Keith Haring has continued to resonate with people? And why, why is he still relevant today? I think if you don't necessarily know who Keith Haring is by name, you still might be able to pick out his works just because of the consistent visual style that he established. Um, it's just so quickly recognizable and took on across the 1980s and then beyond, um, not only through art, but through t-shirts and posters and commercially available items. It became really widespread and familiar to a lot of people. So he has that base, which makes him you know, something of a recognizable artist for folks. But then beyond that, he also touched on a lot of issues related to politics or social issues. Herring was really, along with Andy Warhol, one of the best known openly gay artists in the 1980s across the height of the AIDS crisis. He did uh, pass away of AIDS-related complications in 1990 at the age of just 31. So he had this amazingly productive about 10 years of the height of his career. Um, but through not only that immediate recognizability, but then the depth in his work and the significance of him in the 1980s um, as a sort of social figure, I think all of that means that he continues to remain relevant. Um, a lot of the issues that he was contending with, whether it was drug use, racism, homophobia, are issues that are still with us. And I certainly felt, while working on this show, really eager to dig into how he approached those issues, um, because I think a lot of the approach where he would combine energy and optimism and positivity with genuine engagement, you know, we could use more of that pretty much always. From a marketing standpoint, you know, these, these visuals are so like energetic and interesting and engaging, you know, you see it and there's something about the art that from a really quick instant, like look at, you're like, oh, like I want to engage with that, which is nice. And I talked to a local artist who specifically said, you know, I think I was inspired by Keith Haring from the act of merch, right? Opening an Etsy store or, you know, being able to kind of take the art that I make and make it into pieces and jewelry and, and, and buttons, and et cetera. And, you know, I think that is kind of a, a blessing for modern artists in this idea of it's okay to go out there with the merch and make it accessible really with the art. So what is uh, so special about the subway drawings in particular? So I know the museum we borrowed, we got some great loans for subway drawings. Walk us through um, the subway drawing era of Keith Haring. Yeah, it's a great place as we start to really dig into the details of his career um, because it's kind of the origin. So like I said, in 1980, he's been doing abstract painting, performance art, video art, but he had a main goal of reaching the widest possible audience. That's a really big motivator throughout the whole arc of his career. So Herring was down in the New York City subway one day. In a subway station, he noticed on the wall this advertising board, which was really just a frame, and inside of the frame would be an advertisement pasted up on paper. But when an ad would go out of its contract, you don't get advertising for free in New York City, so the transit authority would plaster or glue over a blank black piece of paper until a new ad would come in. But Herring realized that blank, black piece of paper was an empty space that he could fill with art. And so in a moment of inspiration, he ran up to surface level, bought a piece of chalk, ran back down to the subway station, and did a chalk drawing on that black paper. Between 1980 and 1985, he did over 5,000 drawings in that exact same process. And he loved everything about this. 
Most of all, he loved that he was working directly in view of the public and that anybody could be riding the New York subway from a museum curator who would be interested in his art in a very particular way, all the way to school kids who would have their own perspective. And he loved working in front of these people, talking with them, getting them involved. The one thing he would always tell them is, my job is to do the drawings, your job is the interpretation. And I like telling people that because I think as a curator, I don't want what I say to be the be all end all. I want visitors to feel empowered to interpret the works of art in front of them. I love that Herring wanted to interact with people and wanted to make that possible. And he loved having to work quickly so that he wouldn't get harassed by the police. He got over a hundred tickets and did get arrested <laughs> at least once while doing all these drawings. He loved the combination of the chalk and the paper. Um, he loved that he couldn't erase so that he had to get everything right the first time. And by the way, his ability to get these drawings right is amazing. Even though they're relatively simple, I tried to copy one just for fun on the whiteboard by my desk, and I had a reference image to look at, and my version still looks really, really lousy. <laughs> and, and Herring would get it right every single time. So, you know, though it may look simple and sometimes visitors are oriented toward looking at art in terms of how impressive the technical ability is. Even though it's simple, there's a lot of technical ability in his work. So he loved working in the subway, doing you know as many as 40 drawings in a day, and really practicing and learning how to compose the style of image that made him famous. And he wouldn't sign any of the subway drawings, but they were so consistent and so striking that people across New York City and people visiting the city saw them popping up and realized that there was one artist who was behind them. And that's really what launched his career. Um, just this almost literally underground, you know, kind of guerrilla um, adjacent to graffiti, but not quite the same. He was, you know, careful to make sure that that was uh, not a scene that he was intruding on, but more drawing inspiration from. But this is really the foundation is in those subway drawings. And it's fantastic that we have two whole walls of subway drawings in our exhibition to give that starting point for his career. Yeah, I think two takeaways for artists out there, right? It's taking advantage of an opportunity that presents itself, right? He saw this black paper that was going unused, was just sitting there, did it. And um, I think to really get into your own style, because there is definitely, you know, very different looks in these subway drawings, but that style of his just carries through across, right? Whether it's a pig throwing away litter or, you know, a giant muscle arm holding the American flag, right? Like I, you can just tell like, Oh, that's herring, even without the signature. So, and how did we um, how did we get those on loan, Jeff? Yeah, so we had this exhibition came together in a very short timeline, at least by museum standards. There were about eight months from deciding that something needed to go in this particular part of our exhibition calendar to opening the herring show. For us, that's pretty short. So I had to work to find loans from a variety of sources. The uh, foundation of the show came from the Rubel Museum in Miami, a private museum with collectors who created the museum, and they were in on the ground floor buying work from Herring and Jean-Michel Basquiat and a whole host of artists who were really impressive in the 1980s. They lent about two-thirds of the works in the show, but to get the whole space to feel as dense and energetic as Herring's work really needs to feel, it was important to add more. And so over that relatively short period, um, I really was canvassing a variety of different potential sources. Ultimately, 
one gallery, I asked to borrow something. They said no. And I said, okay, too bad. But who else can maybe you recommend? Do you know anybody that could lend Herring Works? And they connected me to the Jose Martos Gallery in New York City. And Jose is really an energetic and enthusiastic guy. He's been a secondary market dealer of Herring's work, meaning that when someone owns a piece of Herring's work and wants to sell it, he will help facilitate that. Um, the subway drawings are something that he has dealt with almost as a specialty for a very long time. And he worked out lending a couple from the galleries, holdings, and then also connected me with a number of the collectors that he has worked with who very generously lent works to the exhibition. Um, and it was a very, very helpful and slightly lucky connection to make, but really helped to fill out our sort of Keith Herring timeline. Let's talk about some exciting details of the exhibition in general. So what are some things that maybe you knew before the exhibition or you've learned during the exhibition that, you know, when you think of, oh, this is the, these are the details that make the show, what do those include? I think that before working on this show, I was broadly familiar with Herring's career and his style and the importance that he had within, especially the 1980s in American art. But I didn't know him as a person, I think, in as great of depth. So I had a lot of fun digging into his writings, his interviews, and getting a sense of his voice and his priorities that way. And I discovered that he's really, really smart um, and very thoughtful about the context around the making of art. And so like the subway drawings worked so well for him because every part of that context feeds into the art making. Another detail that I really like to share, sort of along those very lines, is related to a series of works in the show that uh, depict Mickey Mouse. And in one, Mickey Mouse is getting zapped by a UFO and he's sort of filled with radiant energy. And then by the end, he's on TV and that sort of alien energy is being transmitted around the country, around the world even. And I found this quote that I thought was just perfect for this combination of Mickey Mouse and space aliens where Herring says basically, I'm a child of the space age, which means that I grew up and saw the first people go into space. And I also grew up watching Walt Disney cartoons. And he says those two things like in the same breath and the same sentence. And I thought, this covers exactly what these paintings have, but what does that mean really? Why bring those two things together? And I think they come together because that is the environment that he grew up in, like the media environment. For an artist, what's on TV, what's on nowadays, the internet, how information and images are traveling in a culture really sets the tone. And I think it was important to Herring to feel like his work had the same kind of speed and ability to transmit from place to place as television did, because that was the media environment that he grew up in. And really that was the environment that shaped his sense of visual culture. And you mentioned Matt, it would be amazing if he were still with us today, what would he be doing? I think he would have found some way to work with the internet as a venue for his art because he was so good at getting into whatever context was available and making that into something meaningful through his creativity. It reminds me when you talk about this, you know, I, I meet people who say, oh, I'm not inspired by media at all. 
And I'm like, that's impossible. Like, even, you know, if you're not consciously aware, you know, what we're seeing, this idea of him growing up in the space age, you know, people are landing the moon and Mickey Mouse and that TV. Because if you look at that TV that's in those untitled, I believe they're untitled paintings. Yeah, most of his works actually are untitled. And so, again, the interpretation's up to you. Yeah, and that's what's so fun about it is you, you, it's like he's just kind of moving on. He does, a, he does a piece and moves on to the next piece and he's moving on constantly. That's kind of the energy you get. And, uh, but yeah, those old TVs, I mean, yeah, he, that really resonated with him and it stayed with him clearly. So what are some pieces in the exhibition that visitors are really in love with? I think the space when we do the show as a tour that I'm always really excited to turn the corner and share with people. I mean, Matt knows what I'm going to say because he's seen so much of the show. It's obviously the pop shop space. Um, which is a room styled after the pop shop, which was the store that Herring opened in Manhattan in 1986. Come 1985, he decided to stop doing the subway drawings, basically because he was having so much success selling his work for pretty high prices that as soon as he would do a subway drawing, someone would almost immediately come and take it down off the wall so that they could preserve it, which is Pretty understandable, but he also wanted those drawings to be up a little bit longer, more people to see them. So he wanted a new way to share his art with the public. And so he opened a store where he sold t-shirts, posters, buttons, a whole variety of products that would be very affordable because as his paintings were going for tens of thousands of dollars, he didn't want his art to just become for a select audience. He really wanted it to be for everybody. And like you mentioned, Matt, he made sort of headway for that possibility for the artists that follow because up to this point, there had been a few, but not necessarily a lot of artists venturing into that kind of commercial territory. So he took a lot of criticism. People said, you're going to water your art down. You're going to compromise for a mass audience. But he would respond, isn't it a compromise to cater to wealthy art collectors who can pay high prices for paintings? No matter what, you're choosing the circumstance, you're choosing the environment that you're working in. He very forthrightly chose to work in a commercial way and really made it a part of his career almost seamlessly because he was always interested in reaching broad audiences. So to me, maybe it's hindsight as opposed to being a critic in the 80s, but I can't help but think this doesn't seem like something that's foreign to his art. It's very, very immediately involved. Um, and moreover, after Herring's passing, he cre or before he died, I mean, sort of a very, very thin silver lining to the end of his life is he knew that his life was coming to an end. And so he smartly created an artist foundation in his name to carry on his legacy and when an artist creates a foundation, often they leave unsold artwork and some money that they've made over the course of their career. Herring had the opportunity to leave the pop shop and the foundation kept it open until 2005. And then he also left the merchandising rights for all of his designs. And so the foundation continues to work with lots of different brands from like Gap and Old Navy and H&M, um, Uniqlo, all the way up to high fashion. And when those various Herring-inspired products are sold, proceeds go back to the foundation, and the foundation then passes some of that money along to nonprofits that deal with the things that Herring cared about, which were nonprofits helping children and nonprofits helping with research, prevention, and awareness around AIDS and HIV. 
Um, so, I mean, I always tell people when I'm talking about this in the pop shop space, I don't mean to be the cynical museum person telling you to exit through the gift shop, but our gift shop is well stocked with these things. And when you buy them, um, they genuinely do support the causes that Herring cared about. And so again, this um, commercial quality in his work fits in so nicely with everything else that he was doing and with his priorities. You know, two of the things that stand out to me, you know, the ignorance equals fear, silence equals death, fight, AIDS, ACT UP, um, that's the sign that he made in conjunction with ACT UP, you know, AIDS, HIV awareness and education, um, because that was such a huge part of his career. So to have a piece in the show, I think is great. And then, of course, yes, the recreation of the pop shop by local artist Ron Copeland, who, Ron, if you're listening, you'll have to come to the podcast uh, to talk about that piece, because it is phenomenal. We get tagged in it probably every day almost that we're open and to see it even like six months later, like it still has this effect on me that, you know, it, it, I'm lucky, lucky to work here, right? <laughs> but, and, and that style that you mentioned earlier, it is tough to draw. I think people see the, the doodles and that energy and they think it's so easy. But, you know, Ron Copeland actually taught a shoe design class with the idea of trying to imitate that um, pop shop look onto a shoe, right? And, oh, my gosh, the only people who got it were our design team who was there, uh, you know, actual visual artists, right? The rest of us were just scrambling to fill in the shoes as we could. So it is definitely difficult to uh, create that style. And definitely a shout out to Ron Copeland, who did a fantastic job on the pop shop space. Uh, I sh meant to mention him right off the top discussing it. I always want to give him credit. He came in not only with the skills to realize this really large-scale painting project, but also with an intent to research everything about the original pop shop and how it's been recreated on different occasions. Sometimes with installing an exhibition, you really get to dig into a project, and this was one of those occasions, and Ron took it up just fantastically. Yeah, and for a little behind the scenes, it will be painted over. So it is going to be gone uh, after September 24th. So unfortunately, but beautiful at the same time that it's you know not forever. Uh, kind of closing out though, what has this show done to Akron or the community? Have you seen the community kind of respond to this show? Yeah, and in a lot of different ways. One thing that's been really fun is all the different folks who have just wanted to sort of get in on the energy of the show. There have been so many different businesses that have supported us by putting up decals with Keith Haring imagery in their windows, along with some information about the show. Uh, the Metro bus system gave us the space to wrap an entire Metro bus in Keith Haring designs, as well as the backsides of a whole bunch of buses. Um, we've been able to host a lot of different people for events and tours and collaborations. I think it's such a testament to Haring and the energy of his work that when we hosted this show, it continues to radiate outward that way. and bring people in and make people excited. And then as far as the response to the show, there have been a lot of different reasons why people are interested in Herring. I think the ones that have felt the most meaningful to me are people who lived in New York in the 1980s because his career is that really specific 10 year span. And so the whole show feels very of that time just because it's only a short period that is covered. And when people come and say, you know, either I lived in New York in the 80s or I spent time in New York in the 80s, and this really brings me back to that, and I feel like I'm immersed in that, that's felt really meaningful to me because it makes me feel like we got the feeling of it right. 
And some of them, I have to say, some of the most important reactions like that to me have been from gay men who lived in New York City at that time during the height of, height of the AIDS crisis. And they've said, this brings me back to that time. This brings me back to thinking about friends that I lost at that time. In the art world, it wasn't just Herring. We have a gallery of him alongside a number of his closest friends and contemporaries, and a great many of them didn't make it out of the decade. So it's this really precious time in art history and in sort of American art history, and to have reflected that effectively, um, you know, sort of warms my heart to have succeeded at that. And this show's also affected, you know, our younger students who have visited. You know, last week we had an after-school program. I think they were doing something with silk and printing. I don't know if it's silk printing. I'll have to double check. But we got this photo and this um, young student lifted up the silk and underneath was a Keith Haring barking dog. And the joy on her face as she revealed the piece, it was I mean, gosh, it makes me excited as just an individual that art is resonating with people. And um, it's been exciting to see that for the last six months. And going forward, I think, as we kind of double down on our commitment to community and, you know, art is for everybody. So, um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. I appreciate it. Sure. I mean, the Herring Show is only open till September 24th, so time is drawing short. So I'm just happy to have had this little extra opportunity to really savor it and talk a bit more about it while we still have the show on view. Absolutely. And you don't want to miss out because we have a farewell party Friday, September 22nd from 6 to 9. We're going to have a photo op session. Ooh, make and take art project for all ages. There's going to be a DJ, a.k.a. me, part-time podcaster, part-time DJ. So 80s music all night long. And Matt has his Keith Haring DJ dog t-shirt on right now, so he's ready to go. Every time I've DJed at the museum the last six months, I've worn this shirt because it, it, it hits two things, right? It hits the Keith Haring, and then it's like a label for who I am at the party or the event. So, um, And then, of course, our last day is Sunday, September 24th, 11 to 5. And that's going to be special, too. We're going to have some activities going on and... I'm also DJing again. <laughs> so busy weekend for me. Um, so it's that last day. So you definitely want to make sure that you um, visit or even revisit because, I mean, to have this amount of Keith Herod in Ohio, we had a, um, a curator come from Cincinnati who said that this was the largest Keith Herring show in Ohio. Now, I don't, I can't fully verify that. However, I'm going to believe their word that this is one of the, maybe if not the most uh, largest Keith Herring show that we've had in the state. So Definitely come down. Uh, any last words, Jeff? No, I mean, uh, oh, I want to say something good about Herring because, like I said, there's only so much more time to go. I just, I just have to say that as a result of this show, I said earlier, but I just feel like I've gotten a greater appreciation for him as an artist. It's really felt like a privilege to get to delve into his art, his thought about it, and then to share it with people. Coming out of... Now, things being a little bit slower after the pandemic, this show has been really a wonderful way for the museum to get back up to full attendance or even then some um, and to just sort of explode back onto the scene, I hope. And so I hope that this shows people what we're capable of, that we want to show art that's vibrant and relevant and exciting and that brings people in. Um, it's just been a pleasure and a privilege for me, and I'm so glad I got a chance to work on it with uh, the wonderful team here. Thank you so much for listening to Behind the Canvas with me, Matt, and the Akron Art Museum. 
For more information and to plan your visit, go to AquinartMuseum.org. You can also search the collection, explore upcoming events, and learn more about careers at the Akron Art Museum. The museum is open Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. And Thursdays, we're open from 11 to 8 p.m. And we're free on Thursdays. 